And if you brought your Bible with you, I'm not going to ask you to turn to Exodus. Sorry. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Confession this morning, I, I just need to pause in our study through Exodus. We'll pick back up next week. There's just been so much going on this week. Um, with different things as I had to prepare, as Sophie said, to preach in the next hour um, as well. I just didn't feel as prepared as I would want to be to teach a large chunk of Exodus. So uh, I decided to consider a different passage this week, and we'll pick right back up next week. So a few years ago, we studied through the book of Acts. Some of you may have been here for that, some of you not. And I thought we would look and think about a really great chapter of that book, I think a well-known chapter, chapter 4. And the reason I picked this one is for a couple of reasons. One, I think that this Acts chapter 4 and the message it has for us will, I think, hopefully be an encouragement to us as we are fast approaching another fall semester um, when thousands of more people are going to be flooding into town. Uh, and with those thousands of people, lots and lots and lots of opportunities to bear witness to Christ. And so I thought that for that reason, this would be a good chapter to think about. And, um, and the other thing that made me think about this chapter was if you were at Summer Bible Study this past Thursday night, uh, one of the things we talked about then was how the Lord... Uh, deepens our understanding of him, his ways, his character, his sovereignty, his power, his provision, his kindness, his patience, his all the things about him. He, he reveals more of himself to us experientially when we step out in faith and, 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 and um, step out of our comfort zones, not uh, do something much more difficult than sitting with a cup of coffee and, with a Bible in, the, in our then, you know, having a quiet time, actually act upon that, step out in faith, step out of our comfort zones to be obedient in difficult situations. Whether that's talking, sharing the gospel with someone you, 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 you know that the Spirit's been prompting you to, that you've been afraid to, or uh, just any kind of thing. And, and, and uh, you know it's going to be a situation in which we're, you're completely reliant upon His grace, His provision, um, His help. And for that reason, this, this passage also came to mind. And so I hope, I hope, you know, God will teach us some good things through it. Uh, Acts chapter 4. We, just to set the stage for this before we read, we're going to study verses 1 to 31, not the entire chapter, but almost the entire chapter. But you know that Acts was written by Luke, um, who obviously wrote the gospel of Luke. Just a little tidbit. Uh, if you, if you, because the gospel of Luke is 24 chapters and Acts is 28, if you go by, by volume, word count kind of thing. Luke wrote more of our New Testament than anybody else did. Uh, Paul wrote more books, obviously, but by number of words contributed to our New Testament, Luke gets that honor. But he wrote this clearly as a sequel to his gospel. He dresses both the gospel and Acts to the same guy, Theophilus. And, um, and so uh, his gospel recounted... Um, the, the story of Jesus Christ and his ministry up to his life, his, his life, his death, his resurrection. Acts begins with his ascension uh, and, and covers the next 30 years or so of the early church. Um, the book opens, by the way, just to tell you what, to remind you what Acts is about. 
the book begins in 1-1 saying, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So clearly that's his summary of his gospel account that he wrote. Uh, but he words it as having this book having to, or that book having to do with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, which implies um, that Acts is going to be about what Jesus continued to do. But if in chapter 1, Jesus ascends back to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, in what way is Jesus still active to be do, continuing to doing and to teach, as he implies in chapter 1, verse 1, when he's not physically there? The answer is he does it through the Spirit, the Spirit uh, empowering his people to carry, carry that on. So the Holy Spirit comes in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. In chapter 3, uh, Peter and John heal a man, a, a man who was lame, uh, as we'll learn in chapter 4 today, uh, he, he was over 40 years old. Um, but they healed this man as they were entering into the temple uh, there in Jerusalem at the hour of prayer. And when asked to explain how this miracle took place, um, how this grown man who'd been lame all of his life can all of a sudden leap and run, uh, they answer, well, it was Jesus who healed him through them. And as the crowd gathered because of it, Peter preached the gospel, and it's in the middle of that same episode that, that chapter 4 begins. So if you found Acts 4, let's read our passage, um, verses 1 through 31. And as they were speaking to the people, that would be Peter and John, the, the priests and the captain of the people and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to, be, came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set, set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Namely, the healing of that lame man. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being condemned today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, means this ha by, by, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a good memory verse, by the way. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was raised, excuse me, who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, when they were released, they went to their friends as report, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, or prayed, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, they're quoting Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, clear, sufficient, authoritative, and necessary word. Oh, Lord, because it is that, Lord, would you please give us um, eyes to fresh eyes to see truth in this chapter. This chapter is, is thankfully, I think, very familiar to many of us. That's a good thing. But be, would, you, would you help us to fight through the familiarity and, and to see uh, fresh what you would have us to see in it today? Would you, um, would you give us minds to understand the truth here? Would you give us hearts to embrace it, love it, wills to obey it? Give us understanding of how we might take this and put it into practice in our lives in very specific situations. Lord, give us all ears to hear, and Lord, would you please give me the help that I really do need to, to teach this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's, you know, I, I emphasized it when I read it, but every time I read this, this chapter, uh, this, this, this same idea just leaps off, off the page, and it's the idea of, boldness, I mean, it appears at least three very 
intentional times in this text. Peter displays boldness early in the chapter when he and John were standing before the Sanhedrin to give an account uh, after being arrested. How did, how did the miracle happen, and etc. And the first thing that the Sanhedrin notices about them is their boldness, despite being uneducated and common men. And then finally, after they are released and they go back to their brothers and sisters and, and they pray together, what is it that they pray for? Not protect us from the threats, not protect us from, but they pray for boldness. They ask for boldness to continue to speak despite the threats. And then the Holy Spirit moves and the place was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and what did they do? They did that very thing. They continued to speak with boldness. It's three times. Just That's clearly the idea. So that's what I want to do is walk back through this passage and sort of think about boldness for the sake of the gospel. Boldness for the sake of the gospel. And as we move back through the, the passage, if you're taking notes, here's, here's just what, what I want us to see. Uh, in verses 1 through 12, I want us to think, see just the prominence of boldness. The prominence of boldness in Peter and John, especially Peter. Uh, so it's just, obviously, it's the, it's the most notice, noticeable thing about them to the Sanhedrin in verse 13. But that's verses 1 to 12, the prominence of boldness. And then beginning in verse 13, all the way through verse 22, uh, I want to think about the possibility of boldness. The possibility of boldness. We'll see that in, in how the, the Sanhedrin respond to Peter and John after they gave their defense. I, hopefully it will give hope to us. The possibility of boldness. And then finally, in verses 23 to 31, we're going to think about the prayer for boldness. So this is one of the great prayers of the Bible. There's a lot of prayers inscripturated in for us. Um, and this is one that helps us balance a high view of the sovereign rule and power of God, to balance that, which is a good thing, how that does not negate our explicit and intentional dependence upon him as we walk out in obedience. Okay, uh, So that's where we're headed. So let's go back to the beginning and think first about the prominence of boldness in Peter and John in these early verses. Even though, and this is the reason why I spent some time in, in preface, like setting the stage for this chapter, because even though there's a chapter division here, um, what you find when you come to verse 1, as I indicated, is that you're still in the same story from chapter 3. Uh, because verse 1 begins, and as they were speaking to the people. If this was the beginning of an altogether new story, who and what is that even talking about, right? But if you ignore the big fat four right there at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning there, it makes perfect sense. In chapter 3, the, the lame man had been healed. The miracle drew a crowd. When the crowd came, Peter, as, as is typical, by the way, uh, in, in all through the book of Acts, um, the Holy Spirit will perform a, a, an, an incredible miracle through the apostles. What was the purpose of that? Is it just because signs and wonders are now supposed to be the regular uh, norm of things in Christianity. No, it was a, at a unique period in Christianity when Jesus had just ascended back to the Father, uh, the outpouring of the Spirit, the church is being born. This is a new time. It, God is doing remarkable things at this hinge of history. And, and he sends the Spirit who performs miracles through the, through the disciples, through the apostles, which, which now draws a crowd which provides a forum for them to now preach the gospel, right? 
Um, and that's what they did. And, 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 that, and it's in the middle of that preaching that our chapter begins. Interestingly, notice it says, as they were speaking to the people. It appears that it wasn't just Peter uh, who was preaching, but John. John was exhort, exhorting the people along with Peter to turn away from their sins, turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So this chapter opens with Peter and John still preaching with an over, over 40-year-old formerly lame man walking around perfectly healthy uh, around the crowd. So that had to be. I mean, the, the populations were just smaller then than they are now. So I think more people knew people. I mean, they, just, they would have seen this man every day. How, how weird, how surreal would that have been to see this guy that you saw and you could see with your own eyes he was lame. He wasn't faking it. Now he's walking and leaping around. And, and while you're seeing that and trying to process that, you've got these two guys that are preaching the gospel. But here they are still exhorting the people. And, uh, and the rest of verse 1 says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them. So in, into this crowd of deeply captivated, surely, and apparently deeply repentant people, because it says many of them heard they repented. They, they, here, here walks a very conspicuous group uh, of people. The, the priests here would have been those on duty that day for the evening sacrifices. The captain of the temple would have been second to the high priest, and uh, and already it, you know already a, a, a somewhat potentially intimidating uh, intrusion. The Sadducees are also with him. Um, by the way, these Sadducees would have been the, the liberal bunch of the day. I mean, they were rulers. They were, they were sort of liberal, and they didn't believe in any kind of resurrection of the dead. They were very this-worldly, and because they were very this-worldly, they were also very often very rich. They put all their focus into this world, and they were powerful because they were rich. Um, this whole group of people come into the scene, and, um, they, and, and the... And the, um, the, the, the the others would have been the religious conservatives of the day. But here they were. And why did they make this grand entrance into the crowd? As Peter and John were preaching, verse 2 says, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. When, the, when, the, when, the, when they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that's why the Sadducees are showing up because they didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. Um, yeah, they were annoyed precisely at them preaching Jesus in the resurrection from the dead. Think about that carefully. Um, not, not, not the mere fact that Jesus rose from the dead, which they, would have, they wouldn't have already liked that. They wouldn't have already taken that, but uh, probably wouldn't have made a fuss over, but they were upset because they were saying not only that Jesus rose from the dead, but because he did, all believers in him are assured of a resurrection from the dead. Like his, his resurrection was a first fruits of a great harvest coming in the future. So why were they all upset about that? Well, theologically, they didn't agree with it. But maybe so more politically, it was a touchy subject. Why? Because, they were, because to say what Peter and John were saying um, was to say that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Messiah, which in that day had all kinds of political overtones that the Romans didn't like, and so the Sadducees didn't like it either. So because the, the Sadducees were friendly with the Romans, and they didn't want that messed up. So in verse 3, they arrest Peter and John, and they keep, 
They kept him in custody until the next day, until the whole Sanhedrin could decide what to do. And I love how Luke um, takes this opportunity to tell us that hundreds more, maybe thousands, believed anyway. Right? They'll just nestle that one in there. It says the number of men came to be about 5,000. It's debated if that was the, the whole number of the disciples now, or it was actually just the men. And if the latter, there were many, many thousands of believers at this point beyond that. But just try to imagine if you're, if you're Peter and John, you, you probably weren't put in a very comfortable lodging when they were arrested. You hadn't broken any laws. You had not done anything breaking a law. Uh, but the people who had authority over their lives had just decided to arrest them and decide what to do with them. I mean, you had not broken any law. I mean, don't, don't, don't try to read this in a faraway, sanitized way. Um, Peter and John were real men uh, who had families. They did. Who had real fears. Sure, Jesus had warned them that difficulties were going to come, but just imagine that John and, John and Peter had grown up uh, Jewish, and so just ingrained in them from their earliest memories of childhood, they're, they're, even though they were no longer, they were Christian now, they, there was probably still a measure of ingrained fear uh, or trepidation of the Jewish leaders, of uh, the Sanhedrin as they were standing before them. I mean, that... that that, that was from their earliest childhood days. These were, the author, these were God's appointed authorities. And notice how Luke describes the scene in verses 5 and 6. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly families. Quite a list. Um, all the guys from the day before plus a few more. And they were named by name, Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander. I mean, three of those guys, Annas, Caiaphas, and possibly John, were high priests at one point or another in history. It, it, was, the, it was the whole Sanhedrin called to court. And verse 7, if you're looking at verse 7, verse 7 says they put... John and Peter right in the middle of their circle. And they were trying their best to intimidate the fool out of Peter and John. And when you really think about it, there's a good chance that, that, that this is the same exact group of men. Because this is just 40 or 50 days later the same group of men that Jesus Christ himself stood before um, just a couple of months earlier. And the Sanhedrin spoke first. And they said, how did this miracle happen? By what power or by what name did, did you do this? And they'll admit down in verse 16 uh, when they're talking amongst themselves, the, that Sanhedrin will admit when, when, nobody, when the cameras aren't on, <laughs> what are we going to do? For that a notable sign has been performed, it gives evident. You can't deny it. So they want to know how it happened. Like they asked Peter and John, 
And, and that's when the unexpected happened. John Polhill was a, he's retired now. He may be passed on now. I, he was a longtime uh, professor at Southern Seminary, New Testament professor. He, uh, he points out, he was a tremendously brilliant man. He points out that the, the, the ancient um, Jewish historian Josephus described the, he described the normal, the normal defendant who would stand before that Sanhedrin as totally submissive. Um, often they would even wear a black garment as like contrition, just hoping for mercy from this Sanhedrin. But you get to verse 8, and rather than being submissive and certainly not wearing black, and certainly not pretending to be mourning over their supposed transgressions, verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them and he he proceeds to explain to them that it was in, in the name of jesus christ that the lame man was healed that jesus christ is the one who healed this man through them and notice how he says it in verse 10 let it be known to all of you and to all the people of israel that by the name of jesus christ of nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead. That one, that's the one we're talking about. By him, this man was standing before you well. So apparently the newly walking lame, because of this man, the newly walking lame man was there too, and, and, and Peter is the one who speaks in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and just follow his train of thought. First, if you want to know who healed this man, it was Jesus Christ. And not just that, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, just in case you, we're going to get more specific. We're talking about the same guy. Oh, and by the way, now that we're talking about the same person, you might remember you're the one that killed him. You killed him. But also, if you haven't noticed, he was raised from the dead, you know? That, that, that's the one who did this through us. But he didn't stop there. He says in verse 11 that it's actually worse than they thought. Peter says that they actually, in, in doing what they did in killing Jesus, they actually fulfilled Scripture. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. How would that, how would that make you feel? Like you did wrong, and you know, you know, because you're a Jewish you, you've been reading that passage all your life, and you're like, those are bad guys that would do that. And then somebody comes along and says, it's actually y'all. But he didn't stop there. He tells them in verse 12 that there is hope for them if they would repent. <laughs> if they would repent. Not him. For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else, and we must be saved. Peter says, we. Standing before them, Peter wasn't all accusatory. He didn't say, there is no under there's no salvation in no one else where there's no other name under, given among heaven among men by which you must be saved. He said, we. He acknowledged his own need. Would they? That's the question. They just asked, 
By what name the guy was healed, Peter answered that, but also told them by what name they must be saved and find the forgiveness of their sins. He put them on trial. And the first words of verse 13 are, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they were astonished. That was the most prominent thing about Peter and John to the Sanhedrin. Who are these guys? You know? This is not what we normally get with a couple of guys who stand before us. Nobody talked to them like this. Most, most made no defense whatsoever. They wore black. Please just give us mercy. And these men call us to repentance. And there you see that Peter and John didn't have boldness just for boldness' sake. They were bold for the sake of the gospel. And they were bold in a moment when they had an opportunity to speak, and they answered more than they were asked in order to bear witness about Christ, the very ones who killed Christ. Now, if you're anything like, like I am, you might be prone to read accounts like this and even if you see and think about it in all the ways we just thought about it, you read it and you're still, you're kind of amazed. It's kind of like reading a, a biography of a great Christian. You read that and you go, wow. But then you're still kind of unfazed by it because it's Peter and John. You know, it's like, it's Paul, it's... Charles Spurgeon, or whoever you read of, it's this great guy, and you're like, I'm not them. That's not me. I mean, in the very next chapter, in the very next chapter in, 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 in Acts, you read in chapter 5, verse 15, that they were, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, and that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. I mean... You're almost not surprised to see Peter being so bold. And you don't even really expect to see the, the, this kind of boldness for the gospel. You almost don't, I mean, it's, I, I see that in him. I don't know if, I, I don't know if that's me. But if that's how you see it, that's, if that's kind of just the implicit underlying assumption of, of this passage, this, this, this chapter is without question a general, a general correction. Um, because the next thing we see here is the possibility of boldness. And we don't have time to look at every detail of verses 13 to 22, but really to see the point here, just look at a couple of places. First of all, remember, again, the boldness that they were showing. That's the first thing mentioned after they were done speaking. But also after the Sanhedrin deliberates, but what are we going to do? They threaten them, okay, they, they, they called them in, in verse 18. They called them, they charged them, they threatened them. They commanded them not to speak any more about Christ or, or even anything else in his name. I don't want to hear his name again. And in reply, John and Peter answer in verses 19 and 20, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They are 
still being bold, not just after being summoned, but but threatened. And the and just just again put yourself in the situation, this group that you would have been standing in front of. This not the threats weren't just words. These were threats made by men who could actually do it. Right? What I don't know what they said, but I'm sure it was unsettling. Right? And it's one thing, but again, it's one thing for them to be bold. It's another thing for me. Right? I mean, just look look back up one more time at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Think about that. They were astonished not just at their boldness, but that their boldness did not come from the fact that they were just as educated as everybody else in the room. Or from a family that were, they were born into. They didn't have anything like that. Anything that the culture at that day valued, and the culture still today, frankly. They were so astonished. Uh, what was so astonishing was how absolutely ordinary they were. Part of what gave Peter and John this kind of boldness is, is summarized in something I remember in John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, I recommend that book to you, Don't Waste Your Life. It's pretty straightforward, as the title implies. Um, just, just listen to what he said in that book. You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you, have, you do have to know the few great things that matter. Perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, you don't need to have a high IQ. You don't, need to ha- you, don't, you don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things. Or one great all-embracing thing and be set on fire for them. That was Peter and John. That was part of the reason for their boldness. I mean, they were mastered by one great thing, one great person. Verse 13 says, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They had followed him for three years. They had watched him die. They had seen him raised. They had watched him ascend into heaven right before their very eyes until an angel said, why are you standing there with your mouth open? That gave them boldness. But not that alone. We didn't dwell on it earlier, but back in verse 8, before Peter said a word, it said, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. It was the Holy Spirit in, in them, in that moment, who gave them boldness to bear witness. It wasn't all the cool things that they had seen. It was the Holy Spirit in that moment. They were They were convinced in their faith in Christ, devoted to him, and the Holy Spirit gave them the boldness they needed to bear witness in a scary situation. In the most intimidating of circumstances, it is possible for you and for me to be as bold in our witness to Jesus Christ as Peter and John 
because it was not them, it was Christ in them by the Holy Spirit, which is our promise too. But it's a promise granted to us when we ask, when we're aware that I can't do it in my own strength. So look quickly with me as what we see Peter and John as they're released from custody. They are rejoined. Uh, they rejoined the believers uh, and reported to them all that had happened. And what they do next is instructive for us. Even that even though God has promised us the, the same boldness, He grants it to those who humbly ask. It says in verse twenty-four that when they heard Peter and John tell them about all that happened, first of all, the first thing they did immediately was pray. Was pray. They, they did not feel very self-sufficient at all. Um, and their request is given in verse 29. With a lot of preface, their request, the, the nub of their their prayer is in verse 29 grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness that's the point they asked for it it is all by the way it's all the more amazing based on what they said in their prayer up to that point i mean think about their prayer beginning in in the middle of verse 24 in verse 24, what do they, what do they, how do they begin their prayer? They recognize that God is sovereign over all things. They, they quote, in verses 25 and 26, they quote Psalm 2, where, yes, it says that the nations are raging against the Lord, and they're raging against the Lord and His anointed, but they're raging in vain. And it even says in Psalm 2 that he who is in the heavens laughs, laughs. And they pray in verses 27 and 28 that they know the nations are raging like Psalm 2 says because the Jews and the Gentiles, very clearly in these last few days, the Jews and the Gentiles came together to put Jesus to death on a cross. They confess in this prayer that those rulers as mean as they were and as unjust as they were and as sinful as they were, they were doing only what God's sovereign hand had predestined to take place. So even though the nations are raging, God is Lord over all of it. They don't have any doubt about that. They have a very high view of God. But two things conspired to bring them to this prayer. One is that high view of God knowing that he could provide what they were going to ask. But two, was that even though the nations were raging in vain against the Lord, they were still raging, you know? And the Sanhedrin had still threatened Peter and John, and by extension, all believers associated with them. And so they prayed and asked if the Lord would grant to them, to all of them, the same spirit-given boldness that he had granted to Peter and John. And God immediately answered that prayer. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, 
And they were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That is a prayer that God always answers. Always answered. You're never going to pray that prayer and him leave you high and dry. Like, why, why, why? Because he is the one who commanded us to be his witness. Acts 1.8, Matthew 28. He's the one that commanded us to make disciples and to fulfill the Great Commission. And to, to, to obey that very command is going to require boldness on our part. So when we pray and ask for boldness to bear witness, we're saying, God, help me to obey what you've told me to do. And so if Acts 4 shows us anything, it shows us that, that Peter and John were, were bold in their witness to the Sanhedrin. But that not only is it possible for us to have the same boldness that they have because we have the same Holy Spirit that they had, it's a certainty when we ask for it. I want this passage to be a rock in your shoe, like certainly as the fall semester comes and thousands of students show up. Like here's, here's you're going to need boldness on campus to bear witness to Christ. If you're in a major that doesn't have many Christians in it, and you are one, and you want to bear witness, that's going to take some boldness on your part. Or think about it this way. Think about like on that second week of August when you're going to have hundreds of people show up here, hundreds of freshmen show up here. I want you to see them like in a realistic way. Because, yeah, they have their own volition or maybe because somebody gave them a ride or invited them, they're showing up to church. That's a good thing. Even though they did that, you don't know what kind of church background they came from. You don't, you don't know if they grew up in church at all. You don't know them. And so what I want you to do is to have the boldness, by the way, and have the, have the Christian kindness in your heart, by the way, that when that day comes, you don't just hang out with your already made friends. Like, you can, you can hang out with your already made friends a, a lot. Find the, find the, find the, they don't know where they're going, freshmen. And they're kind of overwhelmed. But be a person who walks up to them and makes a relationship with them. Be bold enough to do that. And give you, it's, like, it's like Pastor Brian. Oh, man, Pastor Brian last week. He was like, by the way, you don't find community. You make community with cruciform love. Which, what is a cruciform love? Laying down your life. Laying down your wants. Laying down what's easy. Make a relationship. And when you make that relationship with that freshman, don't assume they're a Christian. Share your testimony with them. Don't just go play pickleball. Share your testimony with them. I love, you know, I've never played pickleball. I'm sure it's great. Go play pickleball and share your testimony. Like, share your testimony. Share the gospel with them. If the devil puts in your thought, if, if I have this conversation, they may not want to come back to Lakeview 
that's dumb. Have that conversation with them. If they don't come back to Lakeview because you shared the gospel with them, I'm fine with that. Okay? We don't need to rose petal around on scared rose petals just to keep people here. I don't want to be needlessly rude. I don't want to be needlessly uh, offensive. But you can build friendships, and in that friendship, you share who you are, share the story of your life, and share the gospel, the, share them the gospel that you believed. And, 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 and be, be bold enough to just say, have, when, when, when did you come to faith in Christ? Is that the gospel you believed? Like, ask them to tell them their story. Listen for it. Share the gospel with them. They're, I'm just telling you, you're going to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity when in two weeks the floodgates open and they're going to be they're going to be people here. You may be like me, that on the football field of introversion slash extroversion, you were, you were somewhere on like the 35-yard line of the introversion side, right? And you don't get charged by suffocating in a room of hundreds of people. You get charged by being alone and, 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 do, and, and yeah, whatever. That's cruciform love cruciform love um i don't just want a crowd i want a church right and um so that's the that's the encouragement i think we get from from acts chapter four so uh you know what why don't y'all just talk for a few minutes around your table about whatever in the world you want to talk about like make sure it pertains to something i just said go